Hello and welcome to the second series of Monbiosis. Thanks very much indeed for, for joining us again. Now, in, in most of these programmes, we'll be talking to people from the Global South, people whose voices have been massively neglected on the whole. But today I want to talk to someone who's, who's not from the Global South, but has, well, I think some absolutely crucial things to say. And while in most programmes we have a panel of guests, in this case, I just want to talk to him. And I, I think you'll find out why. What we want to discuss is something that's been troubling me more and more. I've been banging on about um, our existential climate and environmental crisis now for 37 years. And generally, I've managed to hold it together by sort of intellectualising the problem. But as I get older, I've found it's harder and harder. And so what I'm faced with and what my guest is faced with and has been very frank and open and articulate about is this question of psychic survival. How, knowing what we know, do we carry on? So I'd like to introduce Peter Kalmus. Um, well, I'll ask him to tell you who he is and what he does, who's been an absolutely crucial voice on this and many other topics. Peter, thank you very much for joining us. Um, so, yeah, tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, so I live in Los Angeles. I have a wife. I've got two teenage sons. Um, you know, everything for me would be absolutely wonderful. I'm, I'm very fortunate, except for this one problem of rapidly accelerating global heating. So um, I am now a climate scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. I've got to say that I'm speaking on my own behalf here. Um, I, I think uh, I wish our institutions were were more willing to sort of speak out, but um, they have their own constraints, I guess, and maybe that's part of the problem here. But it's hard to imagine it being another way it's somehow, actually, right now. But I am. Um, you know, I became a climate scientist in 2012. Before that, I was an astrophysicist uh, searching for gravitational waves. Um, I couldn't keep doing that as I learned more about climate change and ecological breakdown. Um, I kept reading papers about it, getting distracted from the astrophysics, feeling sort of guilty that I was, you know, supposed to be doing astrophysics, but I was getting more and more into climate science. So eventually I made the shift. Um, so yeah, that's that's basically me. Um, I like to coach soccer. I like to go backpacking. Uh, it's been kind of hard to go backpacking in the Sierra Nevada here in, in California because I've been seeing so many dead trees up there. Um, things are changing so fast that it doesn't feel like a vacation anymore. So, um, And I've been affected personally in the last couple of years by climate breakdown to uh, some some very intense heat waves and some crazy mega fires that were happening nearby. So I've kind of decided to, you know, just say what I really think, I guess. And that's why I reached out to you, George. And I said, like, let's just have a conversation and pretend if we can pretend like we're not getting recorded and just talk about this and say what we're really thinking. Yeah. Now, we, we decided to have that conversation after we'd just both watched Don't Look Up and, and written about it. And um, as I suspect most 
people watching this will be aware and don't don't look up is a I think a very powerful satire on climate breakdown and our failure to engage properly with it. Um, a couple of scientists discover uh, a meteor, an asteroid heading towards planet Earth, um, which has the potential to wipe out everything. And they try to convince people of what's coming. And I was, I mean, what struck me very forcefully about it um, and about the reaction to it was that people in our position, people who have been banging our heads against this wall of climate denial or climate disavowal or climate delay or just climate something other than taking the action which needs to be taken right now ism got it straight away it was just like it hit us like a ton of bricks yeah this is it finally they're telling our story this is how it is whereas so many people who haven't had that experience just say uh, what oh no you know it just didn't work for them in the way that it worked for us and you know i found it funny compelling engaging all the rest of it and a lot of these critics who haven't been involved at all in the environmental struggle were, were, were just saying well i didn't find it at all funny it didn't do anything for me um is, is that how you perceive the reaction as well peter yeah so you know the two of us feel this emergency in our bones and we think about it pretty much nonstop. and you know we've devoted our lives basically to trying to uh, create a shift in society, what I call a shift into emergency mode. Um, and it's been an absolutely Sisyphean task, just trying to push against the cultural norms and um, being literally gaslighted. You know, people throw that word around a lot, but that's what's that's what's happening. You know, as a, as a climate scientist, I see what's coming like a train barreling down the track. And, and I, I, I see all society has to do is step out of the way of this train and it's not doing it. It's just, it's running headlong toward disaster, just just heedlessly and unnecessarily. And then I'm told, you know, that I'm an alarmist. I'm told to stay in my lane as a scientist. Literally uh, one, of, one of the film crit critics, I, I think um, it was uh, the New Yorker critic, basically said that possibly in a response to a piece I wrote in The Guardian to, to you know, climate scientists should shut up about art like this. Um, and it was, uh, so for the people who don't feel this in their bones and, you know, are invested in the status quo, uh, you know, staying the way it is, you know, they've, they've reached these positions of power, they've reached, you know, their bank accounts have grown to a certain extent. Um, and they're, and, and I think critically, they're, they're sort of separated from the reality of what's happening. Um, they're not on the front lines. They've got their nice air conditioning. Um, I think for them, it's very hard to, and they don't really know the science, right? Uh, they don't know it deeply. So it's it's very easy to dismiss voices like ours that, that are saying that we're in a serious emergency, that this is irreversible, that many of Earth's life support systems are currently degrading and could, could quite rapidly get and unpredictably get to a point where we have full on civilization collapse. And we don't even we and we we're not even really allowed to talk about that. Right. And and so these these critics and these elite and these politicians and the media gatekeepers, frankly, who are all kind of these this sort of like rich part of society, right, this rich um, uh, kind of 
separated from reality in, in their in their bubble. I don't think they yet fully realize what an emergency we're really in and 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 that they're not that they don't have protection from it either uh, any more than we do it there's no place to run from this we're on this tiny little planet uh in the vast void of space this very you know this this incredibly beautiful place that literally caused us to be here and sustains us with its air with its water with its amazing food with its protection from radiation um, with its livable climate with good temperatures right Our, like all biological systems we're incredibly sensitive to temperatures um so they they haven't felt it in their bones and i i really felt with don't look up uh and i've spoken with adam mckay and i know he does feel this like we do right and so that's why he was able to make a film like that but yeah, I really think that the divide, the film was fascinating to me for kind of uh, revealing that very clearly that divide, right? You have, you don't like forget about, I'm not even talking about the climate deniers. Like in the United States, we have the Republican Party and literally half of them, the, the, their congressional representatives in, in Congress, the senators and the representatives, literally half of the Republicans are on record saying this is a hoax, right? And then many, uh, probably pretty much the rest of them don't want to see any action on climate, although they haven't said that the science is a hoax. It's a grand conspiracy by scientists, which is just absurd to think that we could even pull that off if we wanted to. Not, not to mention the fact that you can literally feel climate change with your body now, with these heat waves that we're getting, with these floods that we're getting, and with the sunny day flooding in Florida. I mean, the level of disconnect from physical reality is just absolutely amazing. But I'm not even talking about the, those hardcore deniers, which who I just can't, as a scientist, I just can't understand how their brain works. Um, I'm talking about the people who will say that it's an existential crisis, who will say, listen to the scientists, who will you know, act like they they understand the science and the implications of the science, science but still pretend uh, that everything is at some level okay. Still pretend that this isn't something that can you know has the potential to literally take down civilization. I mean, we we should talk a little bit later about what that actually kind of means, what that might mean. Um, but they they're they're very, they seem very much like they don't want us to our message to get out. They don't want us to talk about this. They don't they don't talk about a rapid end to the fossil fuel industry, which is very obviously what has to happen, right? The sooner we end the fossil fuel industry, the more of this amazing planet and the more of our collective future we will save. It's as simple as that. And yet they talk about net zero by 2050, right? Which is such a it's such an embarrassing farce, right? It's it's so clearly designed to make it sound like they're doing something when they really aren't. So, so yeah, you know, I was I was really thrilled when I watched the movie um, because, uh, and then I was even I was even more thrilled that it was mainstream. That was critical. If it had been like a little art house thing that no one had watched, it wouldn't have had the same emotional impact for me. And then I was amazed by all the discussion that happened. So, so it's just a Hollywood movie on one hand, but on the other hand, I think it was actually quite significant progress. I, I think so too. And, and I think what was so important and has almost sort of licensed us to go there was 
you know, it showed scientists getting emotional about it. And one mm -hmm. of the things that um, Professor Julia Steinbecker, who we had on um, on a great episode of the, the in the first series of Monbiosis, one of the things that she says is is that people don't believe climate scientists because they don't appear to believe it themselves. If they really believed it, they would be crying. They would be showing the emotion. And instead they're saying, well, it's a graph set that shows it, you know, and it's, you know, it's good to be objective. It's good to be an empiricist. Of course, we've got to have that. We have to have, have the facts and we have to, we have to stick with the facts, but, but it's almost, it's almost like a belief in, in academic circles that you have to sound like a machine when you're presenting the facts and you have to do so dispassionately. Mm. You have to take your own emotions out of it, which, of course, is impossible because we know that the sort of, you know, the intellect and the emotions, they can't be separated anyway. But there's this sort of artificial sort of Cartesian separation that we've created, separating ourselves from the real world within ourselves, as well as the real world outside ourselves. And as a result, people say, well, you know, I mean, they don't even say it, they think it. You know, if you really believe this, you'd be tearing your hair out in front of our very eyes. But because you're not doing that, it can't be true. And she says that sort of at this deep level, that there's that sort of that subliminal sense that, yeah, they don't really believe it. They're just saying it. Um, I completely agree with her on that. And um, it's been, you know, I think the scientists in terms of kind of creating this cultural change are probably more important than we slash, you know, they think. Um, you know, most scientists didn't get into this to be activists, but um, when, you know, as an, as an astrophysicist, I was studying uh, neutron stars, um, you know, on the far side of our galaxy. And um, there were no, it was, you know, fascinating. It's nature is a very beautiful thing. And to, to unlock nature's secrets uh, like that through scientific equations and through observations, to me, it's a kind of art. It's a kind of spirituality. It's just beautiful, beautiful stuff. But there were no implications for humanity. There, there, my my kids' futures and my kids' lives, and and more and more my own future and my own life were not uh, at stake. You know, there was nothing. There was nothing threatening in the gravitational wave science um, for for my kind of existence as a mammal on this spaceship that we call Earth. Um, with the earth science, with the climate science, uh, with the ecology, with the ecological forecasting and projection, with th just the most fundamentals, what's changing so rapidly on this earth system right now, like much more quickly than we've seen uh, in the four and a half billion years that the planet has been around. I mean, this is really a re remarkable time from just a, just a perspective of planetary geology right now. Um, so as a scientist, when you see that personally and my own kind of personal ethics, I feel like you have no choice. Like you have to sound the alarm. You have to make the shift from just doing science to becoming a scientist activist. Um, and I don't understand how you can not do that. And when, so when I, sh so I have a really kind of unique uh, perspective, I think on this as somebody who switched as, as essentially a mid-career scientist from physics into earth science. Um, you know, I, I remember distinctly the first few scientific talks about climate change I went to. Um, 
you know, they'll be talking about projections of flooding, or they'll be talking about projections of extreme heat, or they'll be talking about the, you know, how rapidly the Amazon rainforest is approaching a tipping point. And then, and to me, it's devastating emotionally to be sitting in that audience listening to this talk. And then they always end, you know, 10 or 15 minutes early so that there's questions and answers. And then the questions are always about, you know, particular details of the analysis and what data set they use. And there's, there's never a discussion of how this affects them emotionally or like how absolutely fucked up it is that we're talking about the loss of our planet um, dispassionately. So it even happens in rooms full of scientists. Like when we go and have beers, we might, we might cry a little bit and we might express frustration and deep anger and the terror that a lot of us are feeling. But there's something about being in a group with 40 where these norms are so prevalent. And then as a very junior scientist, I, you know, took me, a, I, I start to do it now and again. I start to raise my hand and say, this is like, I, this is really affecting me. This is, this is terrifying. Like what, you know, how do we approach policymakers? How do we approach the media? You know, it's, it's still a little unclear of how you broach that topic in that room with a bunch of scientists, but at least now that I've, I've, I'm a little bit more senior, um, it doesn't feel like, like when you're coming into someone else's house, right? As that when you're shifting fields like that. So it was a very weird feeling to be an extremely junior scientist with a very tenure, tenuous career situation, right? Being a postdoc um, and, and kind of just trying to read the room and read the landscape while like my head was exploding by what I was hearing. Um, so I, I still, you know, even though I've been a climate scientist for 10 years now, it's still somewhat mysterious to me what is exactly exactly what is going on inside the brains of all my colleagues. Um, yeah, I even did a survey early on to kind of like when I first switched in to try to like get a handle on this, but yeah, I should probably redo it. Um, my, my feeling is now that just like everyone else, there's a range of kind of, I might get in trouble for saying this, but actual climate denial, even among climate scientists, where it's so frightening what's happening that um, as a, as a, basically as a survival mechanism, psychologically, there's a, some kind of a barrier, right? Where, and again, you know, even arrayed against these scientific facts, which are absolutely undeniable at this point, And I would, I would say undeniably terrifying. Um, the cultural norms, the like every day, it's a, it's a pretty sunny day outside, right? When it's not a heat wave or when it's not one of these new mega rainstorms or when you don't have a, cloud of wildfire smoke making you cough and you know making your extremities tingle because something you know there's toxins going into your blood that you don't understand um when that stuff's not happening it's a beautiful day outside you could get in your car and drive to the grocery store and buy food and take your kids to their um you know soccer game or whatever it is um and everything seems normal so those i think those prevailing norms are just so incredibly strong and then you, you you can tend to glom onto those and kind of put up this barrier against all of the terrifying implications of the science that you are literally contributing to so it's a it's just a very very surreal thing and it's um it's very weird to be a you know a social human like a you know engaging socially and trying to figure out the most skillful way of doing that because you can't just, you know, 
yell at people. Um, it's that's they they will ignore you if you do that. Um, so you have to find a way to kind of push the whole thing forward as quickly as you can, right? And but to do nothing, to just kind of uphold the norms, publish the papers, give the talks in a very you know scientific way. That's not really that doesn't feel like pushing things forward as quickly as you can, right? So that's why I've adopted this kind of dual role of almost having two careers of, you know, uh, by daytime, I do the science and, and by night, you know, I, I try to sound the alarm in whatever way I can. And I've, I've tried dozens and dozens of different things to see what will work and what won't and to try to kind of develop a platform to get my voice out there. Um, yeah, so that's the balance that I've struck, right? So you, if you go too far and you just start screaming all the time, then at least the way things are now, with most people still kind of in denial, they'll just ignore you. Yeah, yeah. what you say resonates very strongly for me, um, partly because I realized that I was in denial. Um, I, I've been banging on about this stuff for all this time, for 37 years, just you know, campaigning and writing and broadcasting whenever I can find a platform. And, you know, it's often been very difficult. Um, there's a great hostility, particularly in the broadcast media to discussing this. Right. Uh, which, but, the, which the film really, I think, highlighted very effectively, cleverly, very effectively. yes. But but in in doing all this, you know, I was doing it all with one half of my brain. You know, I was just living in in that rational side, which was just saying, yes, well, I've got to lay out the case, you know, assemble the data, and make the argument. You know, I'm good at making an argument, so I sort of to lay it all out and say, right, um, hypothesis, methodology, results, conclusion, but in column form, um, and and hit people with it. This is what's happening, and all the time. Like you say, going about my life, having children, yeah, having, you know, if I wasn't in denial, would I have had children? I, I yeah, I, I, I can't answer it. I mean, it's not, you know, I don't have an honest answer to that because it's just such, I can't even go there. I can't even. I'm go the there. same way. Yeah. So I had both of my kids before I was really cognizant of what an emergency we were in. Right. So, um, and then it's been a gradual process of waking up for me. Um, I've, I've had a meditation practice since 2003, which, which that's part of why I, you know, I, I sort of speak out the way I do. So one of the things I get from my practice is this sense of um, coming out of myself and just being connected to everything um, and not feeling like I'm me, sort of feeling like I'm a I don't know how to say it, just like a part of this earth, I guess you could say. Um, so, so somehow, like, very, you know, you know, it, it ebbs and flows, right? Sometimes, uh, you know, I'm more connected to that feeling of connection than other times. But when I am, it feels really like just, uh, you know, and I think I think about a lot of activists are sort of feel this way that we are literally the earth defending herself, right? Um, and when you have that perspective, it becomes a lot easier um, because you, you become much, uh, much more fearless. Um, it's, a, it's a really reliable source of courage to make it not about you. Um, and then there's the, like you brought up the, the kid thing, you know, so I, I think a lot of parents have this profound sense when they have kids of suddenly coming out of their own sort of sense of selfish selfishness in their own head and 
this, your sense of time expands, you start to see the next generation, and then that quickly leads to seeing more generations. So you become less just like striving to get for yourself. Um, I think, I, I hope a lot of parents experience this, and you become much more um, interested in what's happening outside of you, especially with these little beings that you've brought into the world that you want the best for, and you really feel how how vulnerable you are as a parent and, and, and in some ways powerless to, to protect them because when you realize how interconnected everything is. So, you know, I would, without hesitation, give my life for my kids. Um, and I think to me as a dad, you know, climate activism just flows naturally out of that. I mean, um, I don't know. I It's just, that's just the you know, I, I don't know what else to say. Uh, to me, it just seems like a like a very it feels like a very natural um, extension of being a parent. Um, and I agree with you. Like sometimes I, I I'm I'm not sure that I would bring kids into this world as it is now. But then once you have kids, you can't really imagine not having them. So it's almost like the question doesn't really compute, right? Like the hypothetical, unless there's a very rapid, very drastic turnaround within the next, well, very few years. What do you see happening? What 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 is the world going to look like? Well, so we have projections. So, so for the next uh, until kind of a mid twenty thirties, um, you know, the the trajectory that the physical trajectory of the Earth will feel very similar no matter what we do, but then starts to diverge, right? So if we keep burning fossil fuels, and and can we just say how how weird it is that there's a an industry that's taking down our entire planet, which is run by people, these fossil fuel capitalists who uh, who won't stop. They, they're, they're already filthy rich. They already have more money than any human could ever know what to do with. And they want more uh, and they and they'll, they'll lie. They'll cheat. They'll assassinate. They'll, you know, give political bribes. To, uh, they'll give they'll, they'll buy up media corporations all just to keep the fossil fuel flowing and to keep those profits flowing. And it's just absolutely remarkable to me that We've gotten to this place. There's a fascinating study that uh, Jason Hickel uh, mentions in his great book, Less is More, 2014. It was a Harvard-Yale study where they they took the subjects and they basically ran a sort of simulation um, about whether it was like an economic uh, experiment. Would you take all of the resources, you know, cut down the entire forest, like fish all the fish, whatever, uh, for your own profit? Or would you take what was sustainable, like what the you know could be replaced by the ecosystem in real time, and therefore leave enough for future generations? And it was was absolutely fascinating. It turns out that sixty eight percent of us would choose to leave enough for future generations. So there's only um, there's only thirty two percent, less than a third, of humans who uh, do what classical economics would say they ought to do and just take as much for themselves as they can. And um, I, I consider those people basically sociopaths. And unfortunately, that this is the problem we're in as as a species trying to self-organize with the, with our governments and our institutions, is unfortunately that, that selfish 32%, uh, destructive 
sociopathic 32%, they naturally rise to positions of leadership because what they, because most of us, 68% of us, we, we don't just want money, more money and more power. We want other things. We want, you know, a good life for our kids. We want happiness. We want community. We want, um, you know, to be able to, I don't know, in, enjoy life um, and to have a sense, a profound sense that things in the future will be okay and that we're going to leave, you know, a good planet for uh, kids and for future generations. But unfortunately, if all you want, if the, your top priority is more money and more power, it's, it's, not that, it's not really that hard to get those things if that's all you want. Right. And so they end up being the CEOs and the, the world leaders and the, you know, the, the sort of fossil fuel capitalists who are willing to lie and cheat and misinform. So it's to me, it's just absolutely remarkable that we're at this point in history. Um, and, you know, maybe it's been like this for a long time in this particular culture, um, you know, this sort of post-enlightenment sort of colonialist, uh, sometimes it's called Western culture, which is, which, which really, you know, again, elevates power and money. And so kind of has, uh, completely destroyed um, quite violently all of these other cultures, many of which didn't prioritize. So it's it's interesting. It's reflected not just in the, on the individual scale, but also in terms of the myriad of cultures and societies that have that exist now on this planet and have existed for a long time. So to go back to your question, um, we so first of all, the stuff that's happening now uh, the the extreme heat waves. That's one of the things that keeps me up at night the most. Just the stupid, dumb, humid heat that is too much for your body to handle. Because I, I was on a hike one time. We get these in the last few years. We've been getting these mega heat waves here in Los Angeles, and there was one I experienced. A sort of you know we we went to a, a coastal forest to try to escape the projected heat wave because I thought it would be I you know, I was super busy doing like working on some paper or something. So I didn't like carefully look at the forecast um, and tried to figure it out. I just went went to this forest in near Santa Barbara, and um, it was incredibly hot and humid. And we were just what we're going for a little backpacking trip, and I had to just stop and go in a stream for a couple of hours, and I felt nauseous and and I had heat exhaustion. And it was like this really weird feeling of not and and this was even after dark because um, it stayed hot so late of not being able to breathe and feeling like you're you're sort of detached from the earth in some way right because because you're trying to get air in and you're trying to cool off but it's not working so like this this connection that we normally take for granted to literally just the atmosphere mm -hmm. kind of went out the window and it was a it was a very terrifying experience so that so all of this stuff we're experiencing you know uh, people drowning in their basements in storms in new york city um the sea level rise um the you know, agricultural impacts, the, the, the increasingly deadly humid heat, um, and then the geopolitical implications such as climate migrants, right? So a band around the equator of the planet is going to become increasingly uninhabitable. The human body won't be able to shed enough wattage of power to stay cool through sweating because it's gonna be too hot and humid in those places. So um, they're gonna have to go more towards the poles um, all of this stuff, you can just every year on average, it's going to get worse until we end the fossil fuel industry. And then even for some number of years um, after that, but we need to end it so that we reach the peak and then things start to come back down.
And then if we keep, you know, if we allow these sociopaths to, if we don't find a way to rest, to literally take power away from them, that's what has to happen now. I thought about this for so intensely, George, for years. And it's such a weird thing to say as a, as a scientist. Um, but I just don't see any way out of it. Like, it seems clear that there, it's, it would surprise me greatly if they actually woke up and said, oh, oh my God, we feel this in our bones now. We have to change this. Um, that doesn't seem to be how human psychology works. There might be rare exceptions to that, but um, they'll probably be replaced by the shareholders with, there's, a, there's, there's an infinite crop of new sociopaths basically. So yeah. and the institutions almost ensure that they will be leading it. So um, if, we, if we keep on this path of fossil fuel and we don't rapidly end the fossil fuel industry, then, then all of this stuff will just start to accelerate, especially after the, the mid 2030s. It's gonna, it's gonna be a rocky road even up until then, in, in my opinion. Um, and then we're gonna start getting some, I think really unpredictable stuff, stuff that's genuinely unpredictable because the earth system is so complex and our human society and our human systems that depend on the earth systems to, to function are also so complex that you're gonna have, you know, how can we predict how, you know, multiple regional crop losses will interplay with a, a massive heat wave uh, in, you know, Northern Africa, like sending like tens of millions of climate, how all of this stuff, and then you might have two nations that are starting to, you know, go to war. You, you might have, you know, Pakistan and India running out of water. And it could, it could all, it's all, these things will, you know, start to happen with more frequency. So there's a greater chance as we go forward that multiple such, um, you know, disasters will overlap um, and then, you know, add that on to the economic and the geo geopolitics. I really, I feel like there should at this point uh, be a, um, a lot of academics and a, and a rigorous discipline of, you could call it collapsology. Um, you know, I don't, I certainly think that we could still avoid the worst uh, effects, but I think that the, the way we're not even it's sort of taboo to even talk about this stuff. Yeah. Certainly not helping because, um, you know, it, it's a collective denial, right? That we're still mm -hmm. in. And mm -hmm. how can we switch into emergency mode, which in my, so my opinion, emergency mode would basically mean like, you know, take, say, saying to the fossil fuel industry, we, you guys have broken the social contract. You're ha taking our whole civilization towards collapse irreversibly, this stuff is irreversible, right? And a lot of the impacts damaging our planet. So we're going to seize your assets and, and, and control prices, right, of fossil fuels, because we still need fossil fuels, but then, you know, redirect fossil fuels to essential life or death sectors and start to wrap it down on a very clear plan year by year. We're going to reduce in this sector, then we're going to reduce in this sector. We're going to build out more renewables so we can run this sector without fossil fuel. And then eventually maybe within, but maybe by 2030, we were completely done with the fossil fuel industry, all with a plan to, toward helping the global South um, sort of avoid the need to uh, burn this much fossil fuel in the first place, right? That's what emergency mode would look like. And here in the United States, we're still completely politically deadlocked. So it's, uh, it's very hard to see how we get there. And, and to get there, we need a rebellion against the sociopaths, don't we? And, and so that's what I think. And so yeah, finally, I think we need, I mean, what, we need what does billions that of look like. 
yes. So um, that's that's the to me that's the the existential question of this existential emergency. So so I say we need a billion climate activists. Um, that's a that's a big statement. So I'm not talking about people signing on to petitions. I'm not even talking about people calling their representatives. Um, I'm talking about direct action, and I'm talking about um, joining up with other people, joining groups, um, you know, not staying silent whenever there's a chance to talk about this stuff, to, to speak about it, and then, you know, causing some good trouble. Um, it's it's unclear how it's going to go down, but if, if we get, and, and then, you know, another critical piece of it, I think, is to break this mainstream silence, which is, again, why I was so happy about the movie Don't Look Up and the fact that it was mainstream. So you have the, the, the news media on one hand, then you have the entertainment media on the other hand, and they've both been almost silent about climate and ecological breakdown. So how, so it's, it's very hard to build a mass movement uh, and get those billions of climate activists, you know, out in the streets um, with the pitchforks if necessary. I mean, this is increasingly going to be a life or death issue and more and more, and it's hard to get that mass mobilization because it's like there's a there's a decade or two time lag, right? So we, it was, as, as a climate activist since 2006, I can tell you that before this stuff was starting to be be you know sensible before you before you're able to sense it with your own body the way you can now and that's only happened really in the last few years so so in the 1990s it was still a signal that we were trying to pull out of you know with with the you know scientific methods pull out of data sets that was hard to see the signal in some places um now it's just you know hits you over the head spring is coming earlier um, plants and animals are migrating rapidly. The oceans are heating tremendously quickly. You can feel it when you go in the ocean. You get these massive heat waves in the wintertime. Um, you get these massive wildfires, which has blown anything away that we've seen. So, so now you have massive rainstorms too. It's, it's, you can sense it. And so the, you know, to, as a scientist, it was deeply frustrating that you couldn't get this sort of mobilization, this kind of movement with the public based on projections of stuff that was going to happen in 10 or 20 years. So we lost and, and the fossil fuel industry really leveraged that that sort of the, the difficulty of having a movement based on abstraction and future projections. So it's very, very easy for the fossil fuel industry to misinform, um, call the scientific results into question, um, manufacture uncertainty that didn't exist. And, and we should say, too, that, of course, there's uncertainty but um, about different aspects of it, but the overall temperature marching up and a lot of the main impacts have been very certain for a very long time. But but they leveraged the, you know, and, and now that we're here with with being able to feel it in our bodies, we're, you know, having heat domes in very Northern cities, uh, up in Vancouver, up in Seattle, um, you know, like I said, there's no place to run. Uh, and, and as you get these impacts happening more in the global North, because, you know, I wish it were, different, but um, a lot of people in the global north tend to uh, sort of assume that it's always been burning in the global south. And it's all, you know, so they don't get, they don't, it doesn't wake them up when there's climate disasters happening in the global south as much as it should. So more and more, you know, these kind of globally rich people in the global north are starting to realize that this, this directly impacts them. 
It doesn't even impact their grandkids. It impacts them. Mm. Certainly impacts their kids. Um, but, you know, they thought they could move up to the to British Columbia to escape climate impacts, and they realized they, they couldn't. And really, in my opinion, there's not really any place that you can yeah. escape to. Yeah. So, um, yeah, uh, I, I think I'm hoping that the success of Don't Look Up leads to more um, sort of mainstream media discussion of just what an emergency we're in. Um, and uh, without pulling any punches, right? Um, just like just like depicted in don't, and don't look up, right? That that's sort of the the kind of the media nicety. All you, you know, we're still at the point right now where you know sporting events, um, celebrity gossip gets an order of magnitude more clicks and discussion and coverage than the you know the possible collapse of everything we know and love. It's just such a surreal thing. So we have to break through that somehow. That would that would help tremendously in terms of mobilizing uh, the public. But again, like these the thirty two percent, the sociopaths, they want to prevent that from happening, right? And so not only are they con controlling the media, they're also like generating laws to make climate direct action, uh, you know, a, a graver crime, and to try to uh, stamp out the climate movement through. Um, sort of using the use of state violence and yeah. the sort of co-option of the legal system. Yeah. So that's where we're at. And I think we all just need to be creative. We all need to be courageous. Um, I would encourage more and more people to get involved in direct action. Petitions don't work if the people you're petitioning uh, don't give a shit, right? Yeah. So what do you think, George? How, how do you think we mobilize? Yeah, well, I mean, it's... I mean, it, mobilizing is the key thing. I think um, people like Extinction Rebellion, Sunrise Movement, Green New Deal rising, they've shown the way to go. We just need 10 times, 100 times as many people out now on the streets. As you say, they're trying to crush us. They're trying to stop that from happening, but they're trying to stop it because they know it's latent power. They understand that once that is unleashed, they won't be able to stop it. And we've just got to unleash it. And we've got to just overwhelm their barricades we, we've just got to push past all those legal instruments and things and say well hell yeah okay loads of us will go to prison all right but you know that is a lot better outcome than everybody basically well dying i mean that is what we're talking about we're talking about the collapse of our life support systems and everybody and everything you know either is wiped out or living in really appalling circumstances those who survive you know this uh, even being locked up in prison is preferable to that and and we you know we we have a duty we have a duty to do that but peter so, I, so I would i could talk to you all day about this i'm, I'm loving it but we, we've we've already overrun our time it's a real shame because you know, yeah honestly it, I, I do so feel amazing. like we're we are just getting started with the conversation. It's I feel kind it. of incredible. I feel it. So we should probably try to do it again. We, we um, need to reconvene. We need to do something else as well um, and have and have that six-hour conversation, which I think this needs to be. It feels you know, I can really feel this needs to go on and on. Um, but um, it's meant to be a half-hour slot. We've already pushed quite a lot of the way past that. I'm really sorry. Um, I mean, because honestly, you're so fascinating. <laughs> Well, it's like this is I think this is the kind of conversation we have to be happening. Uh, we have to be having 
with with more it has to have nuance and it has to be underpinned by the best available science and the best available sociology too mm. i should add um so yeah there's there's so much more to discuss and uh i i hope we can break out of the the kind of what i would i guess call maybe bullshit conversations that have yeah. been happening up to now and start telling it like it you know, and, and it's it's complicated, too, because I do want to say that I don't believe that the human race is on the verge of extinction. But it's such it's so weird to have to say to say that, because what we are taught, what I am talking about is potentially billions of deaths uh, and, and a large swath of the planet being uninhabitable and an incredibly devastating, tragic loss and biodiversity that could last for the next 10 million years. Um, so just uh, cosmically speaking, um, you know, the, the, the stakes here, this being the only place in the universe we know with life are so incredibly high right now. Um, in some sense, it's incredibly, it's sort of a great honor to, to have the opportunity to protect this magnificent planet and all of the life upon it. And, and on the other hand, it just you wake up at 4 a.m. and in, in with this with your heart palpitating and the sense of just feeling completely overwhelmed by how big of a, a charge that is. So I just want to end by saying I love all of the direct uh, action people out there fighting, defending, you know, you are the earth defending herself. Um, and when I think about your courage and how society uh, tries to, uh, you know, oppress you for protecting the earth, um, you know, I, I get very emotional and uh, uh, I, I hope you keep doing it and I hope more people join you. Well, thank you, Peter, for your own courage and your love. And I wish you all strength. Um, well, look, we'll definitely have that longer conversation. It needs to happen. Um, you know, you're such a crucial voice in all this, and it's just so refreshing to have a climate scientist saying it. You know, it's so refreshing to hear someone who they can't dismiss. They can't say, "Oh, what do you know?" You know, because you know a thousand times more than they'll ever know. But speaking from the heart as well as from the head. So I honour you for that, and thank you. And likewise, yeah, George, that, um, you're a source of inspiration and strength to me and to many. So um, uh, thank you for doing what you're doing. I, I, I know it's not easy. <laughs> it may look easy, but it's not. <laughs> no. Thank you, Peter.